This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 12th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, John McGann talks to us about long-standing myths regarding our ability to smell. People are probably a lot better at detecting odors than previously thought. And Lindsay Wessel is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Lindsay Wessel, an intern for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have one on ancient human antics. We've talked about the coexistence of modern humans, Denisovans, and Neanderthals before. Three different kinds of people all walk the earth at the same time, sometimes even getting a little intimate with each other. Now someone else may have joined the party, Homo naledi. What do we know about these guys, Lindsay? Well, the first Homo naledi fossils were found in 2013 during a fossil gathering expedition in caves in South Africa. In order to get the bones, the researchers had to put out a call for the smallest skilled spelunkers out there because the caves were so narrow that members of the team couldn't fit through. Oh, I remember that. I remember that. They were tiny women. Yeah. I didn't realize they were women. (laughs) They were all tiny women. That's right. (laughs) And so what did they think about that? What was the thought about them then in 2013? Um, So the researchers were pretty confused because some of the features, like small skulls, seem to match human ancestors we know to have lived millions of years ago. But other features, like their jaws and thumbs, were much more modern. At first, the researchers wondered if the pieces could even be from separate skeletons. Right. So they have small brains, which makes people think these are very, very old, but they had some other features that looked much more modern. And now a new find, more bones and some dating, have revealed something unexpected about the timing of Naledi. What's changed? So now the researchers have finally been able to date these fossils, and they're pretty stunned at the results. While Homo naledi looked like a primitive ancestor from millions of years ago, the scientists now think it lived only 236,000 to 335,000 years ago, meaning it may have coexisted with the first modern humans. Another one at the party. The dates in this case don't come directly from the bones. They're using sediment and teeth. How believable are these results, considering some of that stuff is a little bit hard to read? Right. Well, one of the methods that they used was to look at radioactive decay of uranium in three teeth. And at least one scientist has cautioned that the age could be off if the team misestimated how much uranium these fossils may have absorbed from groundwater over time in the caves. 
But at the same time, 19 different scientific teams looked at these fossils and arrived at similar estimates, suggesting that even if the estimate shifts a bit, these fossils will still be surprisingly young. Well, what's next for Naledi? What about you know DNA or uh, protein analysis? Can that give us some more insight into their relationship with other people? Well, the team is back in the caves again, and this time they're hoping to find DNA, yes, Um, But the lead researcher will also be looking for uh, signs of culture, like tools or fire, that might help characterize the capabilities of the species. Now we have a story on unexpected carbon trading. Methane is known as a potent greenhouse gas. It traps nearly 30 times as much heat in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. Methane is produced by biological sources like burping cows and bacterial decomposers and from burning fossil fuels. One other source that may be of concern for global warming is methane that seeps out from deep under ocean floors. What is methane doing down there, Lindsay? So underwater, you can have ice-like formations that have methane bound up inside them. And with warming, like the changing temperatures we're seeing in parts of the ocean, these hydrates can melt releasing methane out into the atmosphere, which could be one of these worrisome self-reinforcing cycles that impacts the rates of climate change. And the question here is, how does the seeping CH4, which is the chemical symbol for methane, (laughs) uh, influence the global carbon balance? So how did researchers look at this? Um, Knowing about these methane seeps, researchers set out on expeditions to try and measure how much methane was escaping. And they were surprised because it was much less than they expected. But even more surprising was that carbon dioxide levels were also lower above where these methane seeps were happening. At that point, it started to become clear that something more complicated was at play. Here you are thinking you're going to be bathed in methane, and instead there's no methane at the surface, and there's also a lot less CO2 than expected. Um, What's going on? How could methane seeps lead to changes in carbon dioxide concentrations in seawater? What the scientists realized was probably happening was that along with the methane bubbles coming upwards, nutrient-rich cold waters are also being pushed to the surface. And these nutrients are fertilizing phytoplankton blooms and increasing their uptake of carbon dioxide through photosynthesis. What's the math here? How much methane and how much CO2 are involved? Well, we know methane is a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. But the research found that in these regions in the Arctic, the carbon dioxide absorbed is almost 1,900 times more than the methane emitted. So the overall benefit of carbon dioxide being absorbed is still about 230 times greater than those methane emissions. Okay, so in this case, we see some carbon savings. But does this mean that we don't have to worry about methane seeping out of the ocean? So, so far, this is just one region that this process has been found to be happening. Um, And it may be dependent on some very specific parameters like temperatures or microbe populations. And so until scientists look at these other parameters in other parts of the world, we can't really say what the actual impact will be. Last up, we have a story on color perception. This is something I am not great at. I've taken the online tests and done a poor job of sorting color tiles by hue. And more tragically, I often fail to call colors by their correct names in everyday interactions. Is that a blue shirt and green pants? No, that's a green shirt and brown pants. The question is, am I better than a newborn baby at recognizing colors? So, Lindsay, how good are babies at this? Um, So... 
pretty good, it turns out. Researchers uh, presented some infants with color pairs, 14 different hues. And each hue differed from the next by the same distance on the color wheel, so to speak. While some fell across color boundaries, some fell within the same color. So the infant might be looking at two hues of blue, or maybe they were looking at a hue of blue and a hue of purple. And they found that when a new color was introduced, the infants were more interested than when a new hue of the same color was introduced. So they were distinguishing between colors? Yes. What kinds of colors were they able to distinguish? So they seemed to break up the color spectrum into five categories. Red, green, yellow, blue, and purple. Yeah, orange is missing. Who knows what's going on there? (laughs) Um, And the researchers, what they're trying to get to with this study is how color perception works before it gets all tangled up in language. Does this result mean that they think there's a hardwired set of colors? Uh, Yes. Because the babies seem to be able to tell the difference between these colors, the researchers are suggesting These color categorizations form before language and therefore may be innate. This is all based on the idea that longer gaze time means novelty. Is that enough to go by? Right. So the researchers measure the baby's abilities to detect something new by how long they stare at it. The idea is that babies will be more interested and therefore look at a new thing longer than something that's been there for a while. And while it sounds strange, this is a really standard method for measuring cognitive development in babies. It would be great if we could ask the babies what they're seeing, but in the absence of that option, this is what we have. Let's go back to the biology of color perception for a second here. Do the researchers think this distinction is being made at the level of the eye, you know, in the retina or in the brain? Uh, The researchers are suggesting that these distinctions are actually arising at the level of the retina and that the baby's eyes are actually responding to the boundaries between colors, almost as they would respond to the boundary between light and dark. But the researchers cite evidence for pathways that detect only some of these color boundaries, so there are still lots of questions to be answered. Okay, thanks, Lindsay. What else is on the site this week? This week we've got a story about a printer that makes colors without using ink, and million-dollar Stradivarius violins losing their status in blind sound checks. We, of course, also have a story about how scientists are feeling in the wake of French election results and a great story about challenges to the upcoming 2020 U.S. Census efforts. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks, Sarah. Lindsay Wessel is an intern for our online daily news site. Are people really bad at smelling? Are dogs, mice, bunnies, etc. that much better at detecting odors? Or is our notoriously bad sense of smell a misconception started by anatomists in the 19th century and perpetuated in modern labs today? John McGann sums it up in a review this week in Science and joins us here today on the podcast to sort the myths and facts about human odor detection. John, thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to talk to you. What are some of the common smelling myths, the big misconceptions that we've probably all heard before? (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's strange. There's a lot of popular beliefs about smell that really just aren't true. So some of them come from school. Like there's a lot of folks that are taught in school. Sadly, I admit even my own school at Rutgers that the human nose can discriminate about 10,000 different odors. But that's not true. Actually, we're about a million times better than that in terms of how many odors we can tell apart. But maybe the most widespread belief is just this sort of general idea that humans don't have a really good sense of smell compared to other animals like dogs or rats. 
So, you know, you watch a dog tracking an odor in a park or smelling the urine on a fire hydrant, and I, I sort of laugh, oh, you know, oh, wow, the dog must be able to smell things I can't even imagine. Uh, but the truth of it is, I don't think we give our own sense of smell enough credit. So if you do actually put your nose on the ground and start smelling, it turns out you can smell many of the same things that the dog can. And we also, if you think about it, there's a lot of things that we can smell that a dog doesn't really appreciate, like a fine wine or a beautifully cooked meal. So it's just kind of not fair to say that humans have a sense of smell that's much worse than a dog or something else. It just it depends on the goal. Right. Well, as I alluded to at the top of the show, this seems to have come about, this misconception about humans' ability to smell in the 19th century. Can you trace some of that history for us? Sure thing. So in the 1860s, 1870s, there was this famous French neuroanatomist and early anthropologist named Paul Broca. And he was in Paris. He was really interested in how the brains of humans were different from other animals. And he was a neurosurgeon. He worked on humans who'd had stroke. In fact, Broca's area, which is an area that's damaged when people develop aphasia after a stroke sometimes, is named after him. So he was really struck by the, a, a structure called the, the frontal lobe in the human cerebral cortex and how big it was in humans. Mm -hmm. And when he compared humans to other animals, he decided that that frontal lobe must be the place where there's sort of an enlightened intelligence that makes humans special, that gives us our free will, and it must be physically in this frontal lobe. And that's maybe sort of fair, because there's a lot of decision-making that does happen in the frontal lobe. But then he made this really weird leap, and he thought that the sense of smell, which is really this sort of animalistic sense, he thought, that sort of compels things like sex and other animals... He said, well, hang on a minute. If humans have free will, they must not have smell the way other animals do. So he came up with this idea that there was a trade-off, that in order to have free will, humans had to have really small, weakened olfactory senses. Mm. So when he later did this big classification of animals based on their sense of smell, he made two categories. So we had the osmotique animals who were smellers, and that was almost everything. But then he had this other category he called the anosmetiques, the non-smellers. And that was mostly a small group of animals like dolphins that really actually don't have a sense of smell. They don't have the brain regions or the, the nose regions in their noses that they need to smell. But weirdly, he put humans and closely related primates in the non-smeller category, the anosmetiques, not because we actually can't smell, but because he thought that in order to have free will, we had to be able to sort of choose how we responded to smells unlike other animals. So that was kind of the the hmm. initial problem. <laughs> yeah, and I can kind of see that in the current thinking today, the idea that, you know, there is something animalistic about smelling and odors and appreciating them, and it's about food and, and uh, personal relationships and that kind of thing. Sure thing. But it turns out that a lot of this has perpetuated through the years because we've been comparing apples to apples when measuring the sense of smell in different animals. What are some of the different approaches that have been taken, you know, when you compare a person to a rabbit or a person to a mouse, um, you know, when it comes to the brain structure associated with smell? Yeah, you're exactly right. That part of the challenge is you want to compare apples to apples. You want to, you know, give the same test to everybody and see how they do. But humans and other animals, we're all different. We all inhabit different ecological niches. And so you can't necessarily put the same test in front of every animal and expect that that's going to be a fair metric of each individual. So historically, there was a lot of emphasis on brain size, right? So humans have a really, really big brain, and the olfactory bulb, which is the first structure that processes odors, is proportionately really tiny. 
So Broca and other folks thought, oh, humans must have a bad sense of smell because the bulb is really small compared to the rest of the brain. Right. But the actual structure is bigger than it is in a mouse or a rat. So by that logic, you'd say, oh, well, we should have a better sense of smell than a mouse or a rat. And now with modern technology, you can go in and count the number of neurons in the structure and you find out it's kind of similar. It's actually in between a mouse and a rat. So in terms of the apples to apples thing, part of the idea that turns out to be a key insight is that because humans and other animals have a different senses of smell, they're not identical. For instance, we've got different odor receptor genes that correspond to what humans probably need to smell uh, from an evolutionary perspective. A dog has got a different set of genes. A rat's got a different set of genes. And those genes determine which odors we're most sensitive to. And so the key insight is actually that when you want to compare the ability to smell across species, you have to actually try a lot of different odors. And it will turn out that for some uh, odors, dogs or rats or mice will be better than humans. And for other odors, humans will be better than the dogs and the rats. So don't look at the brain, look at the behavior in order to tell whether or not we're good at smelling. Yeah, you know, it almost sounds kind of strange in retrospect, right, that we have to kind of stop and say, you know, if you want to compare smell across animals, you have to actually look at their ability to smell. (laughs) But it's true. For some reason, for 100 years, the dominant idea was based on the differences in brain size, and then it became more based on the idea of differences in genetics. But there's been relatively little work actually just stacking up a mouse and a rat and a person and a monkey and actually testing them. My colleague uh, Matthias Laska in Sweden has done a uh, really a beautiful set of experiments over the last 15 years or so making these comparisons. And he's really documented in just experiment after experiment that for some odors that one set of species or one animal will be most sensitive to it and then a different odor the human might be most sensitive to it or the rat will be most sensitive to it. Uh, There's one odor in particular that's a component in human blood uh, that humans seem to be really sensitive to compared to, say, mice. Uh, But it's not just super specialized odors. It really seems to be an awful lot of chemicals that are out there that humans are more sensitive than other animals you might have thought had a better sense of smell. Right. And some of these rankings even separate out the sexes in humans. There are some cases where human females and human males are divided by mice and rats. That's true. That's exactly right. It's actually, that's probably not a myth. It it seems to be true that human females in general have a better sense of smell than men. Now, an individual man might be better than an individual woman or vice versa, but on average, that seems to be true in mice, it's true in humans, and it's even true probably before puberty. So we're not entirely sure what causes that difference, but it does seem to be true. So what myths can we throw out right now? What do we know is a common misconception, but we can just say, no, not true? Well, so the biggest misconception is just this general idea that humans have a worse sense of smell than other mammals, because we really don't. It all depends on the task. It all depends on the odor. Another myth is if I were to tell you to, you know, get down on the ground in the park and track something through the park, you'd probably look at me like I was crazy. But you can do it. In fact, my colleague Noam Sobel has a whole uh, whole line of research where he had undergraduates blindfolded and and wearing headphones and padding, and they would crawl around on the park in the park and track odors. I really want to see video of that. That's. Well, I've done it, and it does actually work. It's pretty neat. And I have a colleague who tracks deer in the woods. So that's the, probably the single biggest uh, myth that we need to throw out. The other is I think people don't really think of smell as affecting our lives because in part 
odors are very complicated mixtures. We don't always perceive their influences consciously. But it turns out that we actually really do communicate through the olfactory system. So every person emits a unique set of body odors that conveys things about our genetics and about our reproductive state, but also about our emotions and things like that. And it turns out that not only do we emit these odors, but other people seem to be able to detect them, and not necessarily consciously, but it does influence other people's emotional states, and it does have subtle influences that I think are really underappreciated. So that's sort of another myth that olfaction doesn't really matter except when you're eating, say. Mm. It turns out olfaction matters a lot, probably all the time. So what do we do now that we know to drop these ideas? How should things in research or maybe outside research in the real world change uh, now that we are known to be better smellers? So honestly, I think the biggest thing that needs to change is increasing awareness that when you lose your sense of smell, this is a real medical problem. Mm -hmm. uh, I know, you know, ENTs go to school and they're often taught, you know, if you lost a, loss of smell happens sometimes and it's just kind of not a big deal, but it really is a big deal. It affects emotional well-being. It affects your perception of food because most of flavor is actually smell coming up kind of through the back of your throat to your nose. Uh, it affects dietary choices, and uh, it really is a, a pretty profound loss when you lose your sense of smell, but we don't always have the words to describe it, so I think it gets short shrift. And now that we understand that uh, indeed our sense of smell is really excellent and really impactful, I think it's uh, going to change, I think it really ought to change our perceptions of how important smell is to one's everyday well-being, both in the medical world, technologically. Uh, certainly, if you go to a, a shopping mall, you've certainly noticed probably certain stores have distinct mm -hmm. odors, right? That's not an accident. Some of, the, uh, some of the, the marketers of the world have caught on to our influence by smell, and so they brand with particular odors that are pumped into their stores, no matter what mall you go into, Hollister smells like Hollister, right? Uh, so I think that there's, in a sense, some of this has been used already, but I think uh, reaching a deeper understanding of how it can influence humans and better people's lives is probably uh, still a place where we have a lot of, we have a long way to go. Right. All right, John, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. I've had a good time. John McCann writes about busting olfaction myths in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. 
Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.